All right, so getting into the sermon today, uh, let me start with a story, actually. Um, in, the, uh, in the gloom, not the gloom of uh, Chicago today, but in the gloom of uh, St. Petersburg, Russia, in 1849, there was a young writer by the name of Fyodor Dostoevsky. And he was struggling with his direction in life and his purpose in life. He had been raised in a very harsh and authoritarian household. His dad was a, a doctor, so a very brilliant, smart man, but a very authoritarian figure. Uh, his family environment was really centered around really an egotistical spirit. And so uh, Dostoevsky uh, was a writer, and his writings, uh, as they became more prolific, got on the radar of the government. And it wasn't too long until he found himself arrested and imprisoned. What was his crime? Well, he was accused of uh, instigating and subverting um, the social order by being a part of a, a group of intellectuals that were essentially advocating for social reform. Now, his, so his sense of pride and, and uh, ideological clarity and even his strong sense of self-righteousness was not deterred by this imprisonment. He really saw himself as somebody who was, was really a beacon of truth to the world. He was going to reform the world. He was an, you know, an arbiter of change. He was going to, uh, he and his friends, they were going to usher in a new era of change. But he'd been arrested and thrown in prison, in prison for his views. And the prognosis, the judgment was very grim for him. After eight months in prison, he and his co-conspirators were taken to an execution. And this execution was set up to create max, the maximum amount of despair and fear. Right before Dostoevsky was going to meet his demise and be executed, he was snatched back, as it were, from the precipice. And it was revealed that this was a mock execution. This was a cruel charade to teach him and his co-conspirators a lesson. His crime was, or his sentence was commuted to four years of hard labor in a Siberian labor camp. This reprise from death shook him to his core. The certainty of his worldview that he once had, the strong sense of reform and the ideological uh, absolutism that he had began to crumble away. He found himself imprisoned and chained to thieves and murderers, some of the lowest people in society. Prison for him was a crucible of suffering. He was around some of the most depraved people that you could, some of the most depraved men that you might imagine, that you could imagine. But being there, the longer he was there, the more people he got to know and experience, and seeing his own situation and having this fake execution that kind of woke him up in some regard, he started to see amongst his fellow prisoners a strange sense of humility and of humanity. These so-called people that he would have considered to be sinners before, he started to see them in a different light, and his 
the strength of his former beliefs began to shatter. And the tension grew in his own heart. And the walls of his own self-righteousness were closing in on him. And a deep question lingered in his own heart. Who was he to judge these people? And who was he to have these self-righteous ideological convictions about the world when he himself was no saint? What would become of Dostoevsky. I'm going to pause the story there. His story relates to our passage today. We'll get back to it at the end of the sermon, so hang on for the cliffhanger there for Dostoevsky. So as Rochelle said, we're actually going to be hitting the pause button on our uh, sermon series, The Real Jesus. This is week 11, and we've been going at a snail's pace through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to uh, finish off the rest of the year with a few other things we're planning on doing. And then probably early next year, we're going to jump back into this Mark series and can continue to go through it. It's been a wonderful journey so far. I've learned so much through it. I hope you've learned so much through it as well. But this going through the Gospel of Mark bit by bit is a long-term project and plan uh, that we have, an intention that we have as a church. Um, today we'll be in Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. And really the goal of this series is to look at uh, the Jesus of Scripture, not just uh, what other people say about Jesus, not just other people's opinions or our own interpretations, our own imaginations of what, who Jesus is or what he said, but the Jesus that has been revealed to us in God's Word, because only he can set us free, only he can redeem our hearts, only he can heal our pain. So let's pray, and then let's get into this. Lord, thank you that you came to earth to show us the way but more than showing us the way to die in our place for our sin. And I pray today you drive it home once and again, deeper and deeper, how great you are, how good you are, and how much we can trust you and how much we need you. Show us the real face of God through your Son, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Mark 2, verse 13 through 17. Talking about Jesus, it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table, in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, because of course they couldn't say it to Jesus directly, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said, to, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. Jesus, as we see in this passage here, uh, is growing in popularity. People are desperate to get a piece of Jesus, and so... People are flocking to hear him teach and to see his uh, signs and wonders. And 
Uh, it's so important that people do hear the message of God. I mean, that's why Jesus came, is to tell us the message of God. And so people are gathering around, hearing the message, and th the message of Jesus is not to be hidden and to be reserved for secret private religious meetings or just in religious institutions. The message of God has to go to the masses. It has to go to everyone. It has to go to the whole world. The crowds need to hear this message. So Jesus is out and about on the streets. The crowds gathering anywhere he went. He kind of couldn't, couldn't get away from people. They wanted to hear the message. They wanted to see the signs and the wonders. They wanted to be set free from their oppression and from their sicknesses. And so we see Jesus here uh, growing in popularity. We don't get the specifics of the message of Jesus. Mark, the gospel writer, doesn't, uh, there's no red letter verses in this section. We don't get the, the specifics, uh, but what we do see is through the story of Jesus, through the, this interaction, through this moment, we actually get the message of Jesus, but we get it in a narrative format through this encounter with Levi, the tax collector, and then the subsequent dinner at his house with more tax collectors and those evil sinners, um, we start to see the powerful narrative of the message of Jesus coming through. So we don't have it in words, but we have it through his actions. We see it so clearly uh, through this. And so uh, in this encounter, what's happening is Jesus has called another disciple to join him. Ultimately, and, and this is, uh, he's mentioned here as Levi, uh, otherwise known as Matthew, the tax collector, goes by Matthew. And uh, ultimately, there are 12 main disciples. There's obviously a bigger, broader, you know, there, there, there's, there's a large amount of people that are following Jesus that are his true disciples. But there was uh, a group of 12 that essentially became his intimate inner circle. And up to this point, there have been four added, four fishermen that we looked at, Peter and a few others. Um, and then now we're adding a fifth. So now we've got Matthew, the tax collector, who's been added to this, this group. And this call that goes out to Matthew, the tax collector, Levi, the tax collector, that goes out, this call that goes out is very similar to the call that went out to the first four, the first four fishermen. Um, Mark is very brief about this. There's not a lot of conversation about it. There's, not, uh, there's no terms and conditions. There's no like, hey, this is, there's a, let's draw up a contract. Let's get on the same page. It's, it's a radical call to be with Jesus, to follow Jesus. And Matthew responds to this call. He leaves uh, his business behind, leaves his profession behind, and, and, and he's all in. Uh, and this is what it means to follow Jesus. Any one of us here who's decided to follow Jesus, or if you're thinking about it, that's the call. The call is, hey, at the beginning, you know what? You don't understand a lot. When Jesus shows up, you're, you're excited. Like, there's some pretty exciting things are about Jesus, but you don't have all the answers. In fact, you have hardly any answers. Uh, you're a bit confused. You're not a good person. Matthew is not a good person. So it's just, just the same as all of us. You don't know a lot. You're not very good. But the call comes nonetheless, follow Jesus. And the amazing fruit, when Jesus shows up in your life and he speaks and he, he tells you to do things, something amazing happens and you find yourself going, all right, okay, I'll start following. I don't understand it, I, but there's something resonating in my heart. Now, to us, this seems very sudden, doesn't it? Seems like, ah, this is just, you scratch your head and say, how, how can someone just leave behind you know, their financial security, everything they know in their life, and just abandon all of that and just follow Jesus? How does that work? It, it seems a bit sudden, and there are those times where, I mean, there are some sudden conversions like that, 
Uh, but for, for Matthew, the tax collector, it was probably a little bit of a process. Um, as we looked at in previous weeks, a significant public figure, John the Baptizer, had been spreading the message, right? Hey, the Messiah's coming. Let's get ready. Let's have a renewal, a revival of our own people in, in preparation for the, uh, the Messiah to come. And so Matthew would have been exposed to that, as all Israel was. So uh, there was a real appetite in the Jews of, of Jesus' day for this type of um, renewal to happen. So, so Matthew's hearing this. He's being exposed to some of this. He probably had already... He definitely would have already heard about Jesus and heard some, he would have had some of the stories relayed to him. He would have heard some of the teaching through other people relaying it to him or the miracles relayed to him. Or he may have already seen it himself. Lots of people are hearing it and seeing it. So there's already a softening that's hap probably happening in his own heart. And then when Jesus shows up and says, follow me, he's ready. And maybe you know it too. Maybe, you're experienced, maybe you've experienced it in the past. You're experiencing it now. God does a pre-softening of the heart where the hardness of our own hearts, all our objections, all of our wrestling, all of our self-centeredness, God's chipping away at it, chipping away at it, softening the heart. And then suddenly the call comes and you're like, ah, dang it, I'm ready. <sighs> Wasn't expecting to be ready right now, but something's been going on and now I'm ready. And so Matthew's ready, and he responds. And this would have been quite the scandal to call a guy like Matthew. What a scandal to call this guy. Um, you might say, why a scandal? Well, he's a tax collector, right? Everyone hates tax collectors. I mean, the hatred of tax collectors existed before the dinosaurs. Like, people say the two, the two uh, things you can count on in life are death and taxes. I think it's three things. It's death, taxes, and the hatred of tax collectors. Those are the three universal things in life that you can count on. The Roman system of taxation had been set up with this incentivization built into it. Obviously, the Romans themselves were um, extracting exorbitant taxes, you know, domineering the people, trying to get as much taxation out of them as possible to build their empire. And um, so that's already happening. But then Whenever they uh, employed tax collectors on their behalf to work for them, it was incentivized for the tax collector to not just get the maximum amount that Rome wanted, but to be in it for themselves to try to add on as much as they could to blow up those margins as much as they could so that the tax collectors could enrich themselves. So it's not hard for us to understand why people hated them so much. And so this profession attracted people of ill character and ill repute, you could imagine, con men, swindlers, liars, people, manipulators, people who like want to pull a fast one over somebody. You know, this is the profession for you. If you're like, you're like you know, you've got no shame, whatever it is, this is the profession for you. In fact, uh, Jewish people of the day put tax collectors in the same category as thieves and murderers. They're on the same level. So if you were a Jewish tax collector, you uh, were not allowed to be a judge. You're, you're barred from that profession. Also, you were not allowed to be a witness in court. You were excluded from the synagogue, so you couldn't go to church. There'd be you know, people stopping you on the door, not allowed in. You're a stinky tax collector. We hate you. Uh, you're a disgrace. You're an absolute disgrace. If, if you choose this lifestyle, you're telling your family, your friends, your whole community, you care about money more than your reputation, more than your family, and more than God. That's essentially who you are and what you're doing, what you're all about. If a tax collector touched your house, your house would be considered to be ritualistically unclean in the eyes of 
the population essentially, and you'd have to go through a religious process of, of having it restored to be spiritually clean again. Uh, Jewish people of the day were not allowed to receive donations from tax collectors because they viewed the money um, that they had as, as being stolen. This, this, is, this is tainted money. This is stolen money. And if you received a donation, even if it was a charitable donation, even if a tax collector had a heart for somebody who said, hey, I want to help this person out, it was frowned upon. You don't receive financial assistance from a tax collector because it's dark money, it's stolen money. They were the original libertarians. Taxation is theft, right? But it's worse than that. It's worse than the taxation being theft. It's, that, it's, it's, it's the means by which the tax was gathered. It's kind of like the idea of blood diamonds, right? If you're familiar with the idea of blood diamonds. They're, they're forcing people to mine for diamonds to then fund a war. And you know, so you've got slave, you've got slave labor going on, but then also you're needlessly killing people to start this war. And anyone who uh, sells those diamonds or trades those diamonds or buys those diamonds is, is benefiting those diamonds are stained in blood. So people are walking around wearing these fabulous diamonds, not realizing where they came from, not knowing. Oh man, people's, people were forced into slavery. People were murdered and killed in wars. And I'm wearing these diamonds. I benefited from this. It's that, that kind of idea that makes you sick to your stomach. That's how people felt about these tax collectors. In fact, at one point in history for the Jewish nation, the, the religious leaders passed a piece of legislation that meant it was legal to lie to tax collectors. And that if you lied to a tax collector to underreport your earnings, you could not be prosecuted for it. <laughs> See me later on if you've got some questions about, I'll give you a religious exemption. <laughs> It's a struggle, isn't it? Because, yeah, you see your government doing things you don't, don't agree with. You're like, I'm paying, I'm paying for this. You know, I pay for this. I earned that money. I'm paying for it. Uh, they, they considered, the Jewish people considered um, that, that if you um, worked for Rome and were, were gathering taxes, it was treason against God. And so you can imagine how they justify this. If it's treason against God, well, then just, of course, you can lie to a ta tax collector with impunity. Never going to be prosecuted for it. So we're, we're, I'm painting a picture here. We un, are we understanding the tension? We're understanding the dynamics. Of the, it's not just, oh, a tax collector. Yeah, those people are a little bit annoying. The IRS, pff, those guys. No, it's a tax collector. We understand the nature of it. So Jesus, Jesus already had a lot of tension with the religious leaders already. <laughs> you know, now he's doing this. But uh, he's got a lot of tension with the religious leaders. And... Um, they were jealous of Jesus, of course. He's being successful. The people are talking about him. So the, the scribes and the Pharisees are super jealous. Um, they're confused. They're confused about Jesus. Who is he? Why is he so popular? How does he know all this stuff? How is he doing all this stuff? Um, they, they thought that they were the ones that were supposed to have the power with the people, right? They're the ones with the authority. They're the ones that define the doctrine and give the teaching and tell the people what to do and to shut up and to do their thing and to give their money, whatever it is. And Jesus is messing it all up for them. So they're super mad about Jesus. And so Jesus knows this and he could smooth things over. He could build a bridge. Jesus could say, hey, let's just all get along Let's just try and, you know, he could have made some platitudes. Could have, he could have avoided all this. He knows the tensions are building. He knows it. 
He could have, he could have made some platitudes. He could have made this call of, of, of Matthew the tax collector private, or he could have just called somebody else. Why stir up trouble? Obviously, the big thing Jesus is doing is he's reaching the most despicable. That's what it's all about. Loves reaching despicable people. Welcome to the club. So that's the biggest thing, right? But also, also because he knows the trouble this will create, man, what's he doing? He is intentionally provoking the religious, self-righteous people. He knows this will troll them. He knows it. Now people, so he's trolling them. So people, now listen, preachers, we always, we always like to say Jesus is, hey, he's, he's the ultimate this, he's the ultimate that, right? We always like to say that, right? People, hey, Jesus is like, he's like the ultimate Moses or the ultimate David. He's the, high, the great high priest. He's the great sacrifice. You know, preachers, we always like to say that kind of stuff. And that's absolutely true. But what we have to understand, he's also, he's also the ultimate troll. <laughs> Jesus is the ultimate troll. He's king of kings, lord of lords, and troll of trolls. He... <laughs> Because this act would have been more offensive to the religious leaders of his day than possibly, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, the encounter with the leper. Somebody with leprosy was unclean, and you're not supposed to touch them. They're quarantined. Jesus broke the tradition, broke the expectations of the people and uh, of their history, and he touched the leper. So that's, that's going to make Jesus pretty unpopular. Um, but this guy, Matthew, the tax collector, he is morally unclean. And the difference is the leper didn't choose his condition. He's a leper out of bad circumstance. But the tax collector is, in one sense, a leper, a different kind of leper, right? He's morally unclean out of choice. And so this is going to really aggravate people now. Because now Jesus is intentionally befriending and calling somebody into his inner circle who, out of their own choice, has betrayed Yahweh, their God, has betrayed the Torah, betrayed all this stuff. And it's worse, it gets worse. Thank you, Jesus, for making it worse, stirring up trouble. He then goes to Matthew's house and has dinner and all these other tax collectors and sinners are there. If you understand Jewish dietary law and regulation, you cannot eat with unclean people. And Jesus, again, is breaking tradition, crossing these lines. So it's why it helps us understand why the people were so angry with him. It helps us understand why people loved him so much, because he's so gracious, shaking things up, but also why people hated him so much, because he's so gracious and shaking things up. The tension gets worse, though. It's not just tension with the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees who are pointing the finger saying, how can you eat with these unclean sinners? There would have been tension with his own disciples, too. Think of this. Matthew, the tax collector, we're told that Jesus went down. At the very beginning of the, the first verse we read, Jesus goes down by the sea again. He's by the Sea of Galilee. This is where he first recruited the fishermen from because that's where fishermen hang out, Right? And, but, and then this is where he calls, you know, he, it says he sees Matthew's tax collecting booth. This is where, this is his storefront. He's got a, a shop set up here. So what, we don't know for a fact, but what this likely means is that Matthew was the tax collector for the fishermen. Because that's where the business was run. That's where their business was run. That's where his booth is. 
And so think of it. Jesus, he's already called these four. You've got, you've got Peter, Peter's brother Andrew, a couple other guys. They're now sitting in the home of Matthew the tax collector, the very person who had extorted money out of them, their hard-earned money, overtaxed them, and has this luxury house that he lives in. They're now sitting, eating with this guy who had defrauded them. Do we understand the tension behind the scenes? Well, it's not it's behind the scenes for us, but not for them. This is the ministry of Jesus. This is the thing that Jesus has come to do. He's come to show solidarity with those who are the most marginalized and the most despised in society. Not just the most needy, because these people were wealthy, but the most hated. He's come to build a bridge to reach them. People who have gone down the darkest path, he's come to reach them. The people who are the greediest, he's come to seek them out, to seek a relationship with them and to reconcile those people back to the people that they had harmed and defrauded and cheated. What do the scribes and the Pharisees do? They're not interested in sitting down and doing this. They're not interested in this. They stand from a distance, and they point, and they judge. And we'll read it in verse 17 again. Jesus, Jesus responds to their judgment, and it said, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. These are famous words. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Anyone who tries to find the righteousness of God through their own righteousness will always lose it. But anyone who is far off from the righteousness of God and knows that they are far off from the righteousness of God can receive it. Jesus did come publicly calling people to repent. Yes, there is a message of repentance. It's there. Come and turn. But notice the public message. Yes, that's there. But what does Jesus do now that he's, in a, he's up front and personal having personal interactions. He's now at this dinner party with Matthew the tax collector, his new disciple, and then Matthew's friends. Now this is a personal interaction. What does Jesus do? He changes his approach. Yes, there was a public message of repentance, but now, now I want to build a relationship with you. I'm here to reach you. I'm here to relate to you. I'm here to show grace to you. See, anyone that thinks that Christianity is about moral performance, hates what Jesus is doing right here. Hates it. Because this is all backwards. Don't you need to tell these people that they're... Don't you need to see some evidence of repentance? Don't you need some evidence of life change? Don't they? How can you eat and have a party, a dinner party, with these treacherous, horrible, disgusting, despicable people, these sinners? How on earth could you do this? How could anybody ever do anything like this? This is horrible. People who think that way, and we're often the people who think that way, we don't understand that salvation works differently to what we think. Salvation works this way. It's about proximity to Jesus. When you're close with Jesus, that's how you get righteous. It's not about adhering to a moral standard. Jesus 
produced, graciously produces a desire for that in our hearts. But that's his gracious work in us. And this is such a, this is, this is a scandal. And, and it's actually helpful to us that the scribes and the Pharisees condemn Jesus. Because if you're ever unsure about somebody's message or what that someone's teaching, you know, if you're ever unsure about anything I say or anything somebody else says, if you're ever unsure about it, look to see the kind of people that, that accept it or reject it. Look to see, that's one test. It's not, not 100% foolproof, but it can, it can be a test. Look to see the kind of people. What, how is their response? And that, that can be a validation of, are they close to the mark or not? When Jesus says he's only, he hasn't come for the healthy, he's only come for the sick, he's not saying that he's only come for some people. He's not saying that. We, sometimes we do, we, we make mistakes with the Bible, we hear a statement and our mind sometimes automatically flips it around and does like an inverse of it, and then we say, well, does that mean the opposite is true? And we, we make conclusions about things, we, we, we're not very logical in that regard. Um, Jesus, try and imagine it this way, he's setting up this, this idea of, of, a, of a doctor treating people, a health physician treating people. And imagine you know, a genuine doctor, a true doctor, a doctor who, who really wants to cure people and help people, wants to do everything, everything they can to, to, to help people be healthy. Can you imagine that doctor turning somebody away? Can you imagine? You can't, I mean, that's just unfathomable. Like somebody coming and saying, I'm in pain, I've got this, got this going on, I need help. Like, that, a, a true doctor, someone who really understands their profession, they're going to do everything they can to get to the bottom of it, to do tests, to, to figure out what's going on, and to treat you as a whole person, not just your symptoms. But, you know, the, the, there's something amazing, and that's what Jesus is getting at, that he's saying no one is healthy. No one's healthy. Everyone's sick. But what he's, what he's saying is some people don't know they're sick. That's what he's saying. So the tax collectors are kind of like the lepers. I already made that kind of parallel earlier on, but the tax collectors, they're like the lepers. You're the, a leper, you can see their sickness. It's on the outside. You can see to stay away. You can see they need to be quarantined. They need to be contained. A tax collector, you can see their sin on the outside. They live a certain way. You have to go and pay taxes to them. You know they're defrauding you as you do it. You know, you can see that. The scribes and the Pharisees, though, they have a sickness that's on the inside. And you can't see it. Maybe you and I, maybe we're like the tax collectors and the lepers. Maybe we're that way. Maybe we're, we're the ones we have obvious faults in our lives. Or we, we live very, maybe even, maybe even some of us have professions that are kind of a little shady. And everyone knows it. We know it. Everyone, there's no denying it. You're like, yep, I'm kind of, I, what I'm doing doesn't really help people. It just takes from people, you know. There are some, some work that's that way. But we're like those tax collectors. We, we live in such a way where our sin is obvious and on the outside. There's no denying it. We know it. Everyone knows it. There's no denying it. We're living a crazy life. Maybe it's because of our language. Maybe it's because of our choices. Maybe it's the things we post on social media. Broken trail of relationships behind us misuse of resources, whatever it might be, how we dress. It could be a number. It could be any kind. Of, it's just obvious. It's on the outside. Yeah, I'm a kind of a pleasure-seeking, gluttonous, sinful, terrible kind of person on the outside, right? Kind of obvious. But maybe, maybe some of us are like the scribes and the Pharisees. 
like there's, there's an internal ache. It's like, it's like you know, someone who has arthritis. You, know, you can't see it. You can't see it. Maybe there are a few clues. Maybe the way they move sometimes is a few clues. But ah, this, whichever way you're, you are, if, if you're a tax collector and it's super obvious, your sin is super obvious, you need a doctor. You need, you need, a, you need a doctor. You're a spiritual doctor. If, you're, if you or I are the, the religious people, the moral people, we need a doctor. On the surface, there's a veneer of morality, but maybe in, for us, it's, there's judgments against other people. Looking down, oh, I'm better. We wouldn't, we wouldn't admit that, but that's how we feel sometimes. I'm better. There's pride. There's jealousy. Maybe just like the scribes and the Pharisees were jealous of Jesus. Jealous that Jesus had the power and they resented that he had the power. He had the, the people's hearts. And they, they thought, I should have the power. I want more power. Man, that's, that's on the inside. That's something ugly on the inside, beneath the surface. If that's you or if that's me, we need a doctor too. We need a doctor too. What happened to our friend Dostoevsky? Well, his reckoning came when somebody handed him a copy of the New Testament. And on those cold and solitary Siberian nights, he sat there and he turned the pages, the sacred pages of God's Word. And he kept reading and turning. And as he read and as he turned, an amazing transformation happened inside of him. The words that he once had rejected as being dogmatic and narrow-minded and antiquated, he suddenly realized they mean everything. They mean everything. The parables of forgiveness, the lessons about humility, the acts of sheer grace, it caused his heart to crumble all the objections to crumble away. He saw his arrogance more clearly than he had ever seen it before. His self-righteousness, the depths of it, the pride that he had, it all became completely apparent to it. He saw it more clearly than he had ever seen it before in his entire life. He realized he was a flawed man, just as flawed as all the so-called sinners, the thieves and the murderers as around him. He was no different to any of them. Upon his release, he re-entered the world with a transformed heart, a changed heart. He started writing again, and his writing now was very different. Didn't have the, the boastful sense of self-righteousness to it as it once had had, and the, the ideological certainty of his youth the, the ideologies of, of young people that he was so sure were right. He, all those things had crumbled away. And now he began to write about the, the tension between the search for meaning amidst the experience of suffering. How do human beings, how do we cope and find meaning when we suffer so much? And the novels that he wrote, they dealt with the tension between and the complexities between faith good and evil, and the capacity and the opportunity for redemption. And his transformation, it shows to us, it points to us of the power of the message of Jesus.
that when the grace of Jesus comes into your heart, everything changes. There's another famous Christian author by the name uh, John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He, his, his story uh, follows a similar theme, but we've got this quote here from John Bunyan. He writes this. He says, He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. The person who gets cured is the person who's willing to go to the doctor. I don't know if there's a direct correlation here, but let me present it as a possibility. If you're somebody who won't go to the doctor, is that, is that seed of pride or that issue of pride, is it the same attitude that says, that motivates, makes it hard for me, that says my heart is kind of hard towards God. I don't go to God. I'm not willing. It's not my first impulse to go to God for help. This story of the tax collectors and the scribes and the Pharisees, we don't have the red letters of Jesus explaining it to us, but we have the perfect image of the message of Jesus, of the grace that Jesus came to show us, that we need salvation, but we can't achieve it on our own merits. We can never achieve it on our own merits. We need to be saved. We need to be saved from evil, from the evil around us and the evil within us. We need to be saved from the evil in the world, the influences of the world. The world is caught up in self-improvement, caught up in selfishness, addicted to self-pleasure. But the message of God is give your life, lay your life down like Jesus to give your life up and you'll find the greatest prize, you'll find the greatest joy, you'll find the greatest purpose. It's only in Jesus. If we try and do it on our own righteousness, that's called self-righteousness. It doesn't work. Grace, on the other hand, can meet and find the most despicable and depraved people and purify them. Like these tax collectors, purify them. It's a bit of an insult, isn't it? Jesus is sitting in Matthew's house with all the tax collectors. And he says, I haven't come to, to save or to call the, the healthy but the sick. He's saying they're sick. Listen, Jesus never softens sin. That's what people get upset about. They think, well, he's, he's eating with the sinners. Therefore, he's softening sin. No, he just told all these sinners that they're sick and that they need a doctor. He never, he never gives allowances for sins. In fact, Jesus's, Jesus's standards are higher than any of the moralists that have ever lived in history. They're higher because he's God incarnate. He's a holy God. Here's the thing is he's present with them because he's come to show, show them and show us, I'm here to change you. I'm here to change you. You're insufficient, incomplete, inadequate, and you have to be changed. You have to be changed, and it's only through a relationship with Jesus. It's only through proximity with Jesus. Let's worship Jesus. Let's allow our hearts to be softened before him that we might walk into his righteousness and into his ways. Finishing up this analogy of the doctor, the sickness of the human race is this, is that we have blood poisoning. That's the problem. There's so many differences amongst us. We all look a bit different on the outside, but our blood looks the same, doesn't it? 
And it's the same universal problem for the human race. Our blood is diseased. We need a blood transfusion. Our, we've got this contamination within us. And Jesus died, shed his blood, that we might be purified, that we might have that infusion of life given to us through Jesus. When you like and subscribe, this video reaches more people.